Amen to that. I heard some boldly approaching the Father in that singing there. Is anyone glad for access? Like right now in this moment, like access to the most high. Man, thank you, Chris, for leading us. I told these guys earlier, it was nice not having to work on Sunday morning. This was great. Uh, my name is Brian. Um, I'm the, the worship pastor here. I have the privilege of overseeing Regen as well. And uh, this morning, thankful for the opportunity to walk with you all through Hebrews chapter 8. We've been in Hebrews for a handful of months now. In Hebrews chapter 8, we're going to sink our hearts and minds into this morning. So I have a question for anyone under the age of 20. Do you have any idea what this is? If you're over 20, you can't answer. Anyone under 20 have any idea what this ancient artifact is? Michael, what is this? It's a VHS tape. What do you do with a VHS tape? You, you, you can watch a movie on this? You don't need a subscription? So yeah, this is a VHS tape from the 1980s, 1990s. I stole it. Sorry, Julie. I stole it out of our library here. Um, but what you do with a VHS tape from the 80s or 90s <laughs> is that you play it on this box type thing. Um, I got unplugged somehow. Oh, there's a red light. Oh, sweet. See, I don't even know how to turn one of these things on. So what you would do back in the 80s, 90s with a VHS tape, you would put it into this box thing and you would press it in and you would press play. You didn't need a subscription. You just put this piece of plastic in, and you watch. Let's see. What do we got here? We got, uh, we got some Rack Shack and Benny, okay? But then the weirdest thing, if you had to fast forward or rewind, you would have to do something like that. And remember when you had to rewind? Yeah, like it literally takes an hour just to rewind the VHS, unless like I had one of those like high-speed, fast-paced rewinders. Did anyone have one of those? Be kind, rewind. Um, I, I have a serious question for you. Uh, does anyone still watch movies on this today? And the reason Adam does, I'll tell you why. Because he is like vintage, retro. He wants to stay in touch with the past because there was so much sentimentality and significance there. The only reason you would watch a movie on this today is because you're like retro and you're cool. And you're like, you're way cooler than the rest of us. But other than Adam, other than Adam, is this anyone's primary method of watching a movie in the year 2022? No. It was fine 30 years ago. At the time, we didn't know anything different, right? At the time, we couldn't imagine anything different. But now it's obsolete. And I'm going to turn this off because no one's going to pay attention to me. <laughs> <laughs> I knew you'd be here, Brad, so that's why I turned the, turned the volume down. So we had no idea, right, 30 years ago, if you were alive, we had no idea that 30 years later, there would be HD TV, 4K, I think I read there's even like an 8K now. We had no idea that there was a better viewing experience to come. We had no idea that there would be something far, far better than anything we had experienced before. But now we laugh at how inferior the old was compared to the new. Can you believe we used to live in this reality? 
We didn't know anything better, and we thought that it was sufficient. So this morning, as we walk through uh, Hebrews chapter 8 together, we're going to experience the same thing in regards to the old covenant versus the new covenant. We're going to see that the new covenant into which we've been invited through Christ is far, far better. It's a far better way of relating to God than the old covenant was, and it offers us a completely new, a completely different experience that just might transform our lives. So, but since today is more than an academic Bible study, we want the Holy Spirit to change us. We're not here to learn simply to learn. We're here to be changed. So since that's the case, let's pray, humble your heart before the Lord, and ask him to speak to you today. And what, if you don't mind, could you pray for me, and I'll pray for you, and we'll just be praying for each other, that the Lord would shape us this morning through his word. So Father, we just come to you, boldly we approach the Father, through the work of Christ the Son, by the presence of the Holy Spirit. And Lord, this morning, I, we, we just open up our hearts to you. Lord, we don't want to... Um, have this just be a time where we learn new, neat things, but where we are affected and changed deeply by your spirit today. I can't do that work. I can simply share what you've put on my heart. So Holy Spirit, I pray that you would do the work that each one of us need this morning. Would you change us for your glory and our joy and the good of the world, we pray. Amen. All right, so turn, if you would, to Hebrews chapter 8. Hebrews chapter 8. We're going to start in verse 1. The writer of Hebrews says this. He says, now, the main point in what has been said is this. We have such a high priest. So pausing here, this is great. The writer simply just, he gives us his main point. Since the past few chapters have been fairly dense, uh, the writer wants to ensure that he's clear. He wants to make sure that he's getting his main point across. So he just tells us, straight up, here it is. Are you ready for it? The main point. We have such a high priest. And then he goes on to unpack two reasons why that's significant. He sums up pretty much all he's said in chapter 7 to this point. He sums it up going on in uh, verse 1. He says, we have such a high priest who first has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, and secondly, is a minister in the sanctuary and in the true tabernacle, which the Lord set up, not man. So here we see that Jesus, as our perfect high priest, is both authoritative and active. He's authoritative in that he's seated at the right hand of the throne, and in Bible speak, right hand symbolizes power and authority. So Jesus is in a position of power and authority, yet from that position, he's not passive, he's active. Verse two says, our great high priest is actively ministering in the true tabernacle, the one that God set up in heaven, not man set up on earth. So as our high priest, Jesus is both authoritative and active, or to say it another way, he's seated, yet serving. Can you say that with me? Seated, yet serving. Verse one says, Jesus has taken his seat, which is strange because priest and seated don't normally go together. Priests don't sit when they serve. There were no chairs in the tabernacle because the work was never complete. 
There was always more people with more sin for the priests to deal with. A priest in Old Testament times had to make sacrifices for sin over and over and over and over again, as Todd pointed out to us last week. But Jesus, as our great high priest, is seated. His sacrificial work is complete. And his posture reflects his words, right? We just sang it. John 19, verse 30. It was finished upon that cross. Isn't that a great song? Isn't that a a truth to have sink into your souls that it is finished upon that cross? Final sacrifice made once for all. Nothing more to do. Salvation is secure. And if you think about it, in our world, when someone is exalted, they sit and are served, right? Is anyone like really important in here? Like all you do every day is just sit and people serve you? When you're a king, when you're a ruler, you sit and are served. But that's not Jesus, right? From his seated position of authority, he serves. Jesus ever lives to intercede for us. Hebrews 7, like we saw last week. And though his work of salvation is complete, he's seated. His work of intercession for us continues. He's serving. Like right here, right now, in this moment, Jesus is serving you. Jesus is serving me. He's leading us to the Father, interceding for us. He's speaking truth to your heart right now, interceding for you. He's meeting us where we are in the deepest places of our need. He's interceding for you. Jesus, our great high priest, is constantly serving his people from his seated position of authority. He's seated yet serving. And that, frankly, is unbelievable. That's unbelievable. And the writer of Hebrews is inviting us to slow down just enough to let that sink in and to be amazed, to glory in the truth that we have such a high priest. Don't miss the main point, he says. And this priest, he goes on in verse three, has a better ministry, a better ministry. So verse three, the writer is comparing and contrasting the old versus the new. So look at verse three. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. So it is necessary that this high priest, Jesus, also have something to offer. And we know that Jesus offered the perfect sacrifice, the ultimate gift of himself on the cross, right? Verse four, now if he were on earth, here's the comparison and contrast, he would not be a priest at all, since there are those who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things, just as Moses was warned by God when he was about to erect the temple, the tabernacle. For see, he says, that you make all things by the pattern which was shown to you on the mountain. Verse six, here it is an important verse, pivotal verse. But now he, Jesus, has obtained a more excellent ministry to the extent that he is also the mediator of a better covenant which has been enacted on better promises. So did you see the the comparison and contrast? There's a lot in there. But Jesus is the heavenly ministry that far exceeds the earthly one. 
It's set up by God, we saw earlier, rather than man, and making it perfect as opposed to imperfect. These verses tell us that Jesus' ministry is the original as opposed to the copy, the substance as opposed to the shadow. If we were to sum up all we've seen so far, it's this. Jesus offered a better sacrifice himself. He ministers in a better sanctuary, heaven, and mediates a better covenant with better promises. Simply, Jesus is better. And interestingly, we'll see over the next weeks to come, the writer of Hebrews expands upon the better sacrifice of Jesus in chapter 10. He expands upon the better sanctuary of Jesus in chapter 9. But before he does that, the remainder of chapter 8 today, he's going to sum up some significant insight into the better covenant with better promises of which Jesus is the better mediator. Um, I'm sweating profusely up here. I don't know if you could see that. Is it hot in here? Man. So you got to keep it awkward, right? (laughs) All right, so we're talking about Jesus as the, the better mediator. So let me ask you, what does a mediator do? Brings two sides together, exactly right. A mediator takes one person and another person or one party and another party and negotiates to bring them together. In our case, Jesus is the mediator who stands between us and God, brings us together. Sinful humanity, perfect divinity brings us together. And this bringing together, this reconciliation, to put a Bible word on it, is based upon the terms of a covenant. A covenant. So Ashley and I just celebrated uh, something that happened 10 years ago. Take a look at these babies up here. (laughs) Yeah, I did have more hair. So on April 27, 2012, I stood before a few hundred people just like this, and I said these words. I said, out of my mouth, I, Brian, take thee, Ashley, to be my wedded wife. Have you heard this before? To have and to hold for better or worse, for richer or poorer, in sickness or in health, to love and to cherish from this day forth until death do us part, right? That's a covenant, a binding agreement, an unwavering promise, a set of expectations for how our marriage relationship is going to work. And as Christians, we believe that the covenant of marriage is an illustration of the covenant God has made with his people. And if you read the Old Testament, you're going to see this over and over and over again. God consistently makes covenants with his people. There was one with Adam, one with Noah, one with Abraham, one with Moses, one with David. And these covenants all built on each other as God strategically moved redemptive history forward. And all of these covenants built up to the final covenant, the new covenant, which God said would be an eternal covenant between he and his people. So the new covenant, which we're going to unpack today, is the true and better covenant. It's the binding agreement, the unwavering promise from God on how he will relate to us and how he will interact with us forever. 
the new covenant lays out the expectations for how our relationship with God works. And the terms of this new covenant, as we're going to see momentarily, are just absolutely incredible. Absolutely incredible. So look again at Hebrews chapter 8. We'll pick it up in verse 7. For if that first covenant, what we know as the old covenant, if, if the first covenant had been free of fault, no circumstances uh, would have been sought for a second. So apparently there was an issue with the old covenant. Verse 8, for in finding fault with the people, so there was an issue with the people too, not just the terms of the covenant. For finding fault with the people, God says, behold, days are coming, says the Lord, when I will bring about a new covenant with the house of Israel in the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers on the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant. And I did not care for them, says the Lord. So there are two issues the writer of Hebrews points out here. There's an issue with the people and an issue with the terms. So the people of the old covenant didn't remain faithful to God. They broke their wedding vows, so to speak, and ran off with idols. So God steps in and says, all right, I'm gonna have to fix this. Somehow, some way, I'm gonna fix this in the terms of the new covenant. But the issue wasn't just with the people, it was also a second problem. There was also a second problem. The terms of the old covenant itself, the terms were inadequate insufficient and deliberately so, they were insufficient to deal with the problem of sin. So in God's divine wisdom, he, so God sets out in the new covenant to fix both of the problems, the people and the terms. Both of these issues God would put right in the new covenant, which we're about to see. So are you ready for this? I, I'm so geeked out about this passage. Todd came into my office the other day and said, how is it going? I said, I get to glory in new covenant realities for 30 minutes. Like this is like, this is amazing. So I, I hope you can glory together in this with me. All right, so Hebrews 8 verses 10 through 12, which if you know your Bible, you may notice something. You may notice that this is a straight up quotation from Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34. This, if you didn't know, is the longest Old Testament quotation in the New Testament. And I think that says something. The writer of Hebrews does not want us to miss the significance of these new covenant realities. So much so that he doesn't try to paraphrase it or tweak the wording to make it more relevant. He just spells it out for us in full. 600 years after God articulated it to his people in Jeremiah, the writer of Hebrews is articulating it to the people of that day. And now some 1900 or so years after Hebrews was written, God is inviting us into the realities of this new covenant to marvel at the magnitude of all that they are. So family, let's not miss this, okay? Let's marvel by the Spirit's power and be amazed. So verse 10. For this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. So he's going to lay it out. There's three significant realities in the old covenant, in the new covenant, I should say. 
grounded in one amazing work. So three realities, if you're taking notes, three realities grounded in one work. Okay, here it is. Significant reality number one. In the new covenant, God promises, he promises a life of internal transformation. God says in verse 10, I will put my laws, my commands, my will, my ways, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. So in the new covenant, God asserts himself powerfully into our lives to cause us to change internally and not merely have to conform externally. By his spirit, God cracks open our spiritual skulls and writes his laws into our minds. He cracks open our skulls to write his laws into our minds so that we can know God's laws and understand God's laws. But then he goes further. He doesn't just crack open our our spiritual skulls. He opens up our spiritual chest to write his laws on our hearts so that we don't just know them and understand them, but so we love them and desire to follow them. So God works upon us in the new covenant, allowing us to know and understand his laws, to love and desire God's laws. He acts powerfully upon us to change us from the inside out. That's reality number one of the new covenant. And this truth is articulated elsewhere in a slightly different way. Ezekiel 36, verse 26 and 27 says, Moreover, God again speaking to his people, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and bring it about that you walk in my statues and are careful and follow my ordinances. So in the new covenant, God promises that the Holy Spirit will give us the new hearts and new minds that we need to know and understand God's laws, but more so, to love and desire to follow God's laws. To be transformed in such a deep internal way that we can actually, that we can actually follow and obey the laws that God's puts before us out of a a heart of joyful obedience rather than begrudging submission. God promises his people, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. That's new covenant reality number one. Let's take a look at the second one. In the new covenant, God promises an unbreakable commitment, an unbreakable commitment. Verse 10 continues, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. So that phrase, if you read your Bible, that's another thing you'll see over and over and over again. Um, Time and time again from Exodus 6 onward, where God made the covenant with Moses, he repeats that phrase time and time again to his people to remind them who they are and who he is to them. God, from the very beginning, has always called out a people to make them his own. And in the new covenant, God promises his unbreakable commitment to them 
and enables by his spirit our unbreakable commitment to him. So God is saying from now on, this relationship that we have, have you ever had a relationship defining moment? God comes to his people and says, this relationship from now on is going to work. I'm gonna make sure that this works because I promise you, I will be faithful to you and by my spirit, you'll be faithful to me. I, God says, will never, ever abandon you, and now it's possible for you to never, ever abandon me. To new covenant people, God promises, I will be your God, and you will be. No way to get out of it. You will be my people. And that's amazing. As those who are in Christ, we've been called together to be a people of God's own possession. Todd shared that with us last week, 1 Peter 2. We are a people of God's own possession. He has us in our hands, and he'll never let us go. So we've got first two realities. Internal transformation. What's the second one? Unbreakable commitment. And here's the third one. In the new covenant, God promises personal knowledge of himself. Personal knowledge of himself. Verse 11 says, And they will not teach each one his fellow citizen and each one his brothers, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me. And not a select group of people either. From the least of them to the greatest. So in the new covenant, God makes it possible for all people, regardless of age, status, nationality, gender, God makes it possible for all people to know him, from the least of the world to the greatest of the world. All people can know him. And to know him personally, not just know about him, to know him personally, experientially, in a, in a deep, intimate, relational way. Not merely intellectual knowledge, though that's part of it. There's much more to it. We can now know God personally in ever-increasing ways. So if you think about it, similar to the way that you know another person, um, it's, it's nuanced and unique to each individual, right? Like, like, I know Todd differently than I know Jeff, differently than I know Joe. Every relationship has nuance and uniqueness to it. And God knows you uniquely like that. It enables you to know him uniquely as well. He knows us from the inside out and invites us to know him in all his glorious particularities as well. And like healthy human relationships, our personal knowing of God is continually expanding. It's changing, it's deepening, it's developing. Our personal relationship with God is an always growing knowing. It's an always growing knowing of God himself. So God promises that his people will all know him starting right here, right now, in this life, and increasing exponentially into eternity. We can know God. All right, so we've seen three glorious realities so far. 
God promises his people, firstly, internal transformation. What's the second one? Unbreakable commitment. What's the third one? Personal knowledge of God. But there's more. You ready for this? There's more. Uh, Then we come to verse 12, which gives us the grounds for those three realities, all right? So three realities grounded in one work, and here it is. Verse 12, for, for I will be merciful towards their wrongdoings, and their sins I will remember no longer. So the word for there is important. The reason for reality one, two, three is because of the fact, it's for the fact that God has dealt with our sins. God has not only promised, but has actually made possible full and forever forgiveness in Christ. And everything in the new covenant is based upon God's mercy and his forgiveness of our sins. God has determined, the verse says, to no longer remember it. Every sin of thought, word, and deed, every sin of heart, mind, and will has all been dealt with fully, finally, and forever in the cross. Your sin and mine bore in his body on the tree. Your sin and mine, penalty paid in full. I can't help but think of the song, right? We sing it here a lot. Praise the Lord, his mercy is more. All my sin, all your sin, wrapped up in the person of Jesus, destroyed on the cross. Hallelujah, what a savior. Romans 11, verse 27 says, and this will be my covenant with them. What had to happen first? When I take away their sins. The self-sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross has made permanent forgiveness possible. And because we're permanently forgiven, we can now experience all these incredible new covenant realities in our lives right here and right now. All right, then he wraps this up, he wraps it up for us in verse 13. Verse 13. When he said a new covenant, he has made the first one obsolete. But whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. So let's, let's just be done with it, right? And the implication, I believe the writer of Hebrews is saying to the people of the time and saying to us today, the implication is for Christians, because this is for Christians, right? Christian, why on earth would you go back to VHS when all of these incredible four HD realities are made possible to you now. Like, why would you go back to what's obsolete when there's a far better experience available right here, right now? Now, you may be thinking, I don't go back to old covenant realities. Um, you know, I, I'm, a, I'm in Christ. Like, I'm always walking in the goodness of what he has. I, let's think this through for a second. Even as new covenant people, It's not unheard of. It's common for us to drift back into old covenant ways of thinking. So let me give you a few examples. See if any of these these hit home to you. So in the new covenant, we've said we have new hearts and new minds, right, that are able to know God, love God, and joyfully obey God. 
So why, Christian, at times do we try to perform external religious activities to consciously or subconsciously try to please or appease God? Why do we try to earn through what we do the favor that we've already been given? Has anyone ever done that? I have for sure. I have for sure. But that's old covenant living. But some of us are there today trying to earn what's already been given, trying to use your church attendance and faithful Bible reading to please or appease God when you already have his favor in these new covenant realities. So that's the first example. Second, second example, uh, in the new covenant, we've, we've said that you can live in the confidence. You can live confidently in the fact that there is nothing you can do to escape God's love because he is unbreakably committed to you. There is nothing you can do to escape God's love. So why do we at times live in the uncertainty of, is God mad at me? Like, have I gone too far? Am I too far gone? Will he really take me back this time? Has anyone ever thought like that? Yeah, I have. But that's old covenant thinking. But some of us are there today. And then the third example would be, in the, in the New Covenant, we can know God personally, experientially. We can have an always growing knowing of God himself. So why, Christian, at times, do we live in the torture of dry, dull spiritual disciplines because we feel that we're supposed to, right? Has anyone been there? You're just stuck in these dry, dull disciplines because you feel this fear that if you don't, God's gonna be mad at you, so you just do it. I've lived there for sure. But that's old covenant practice. But some of us are stuck there today. So church family, all of this old covenant living, it's obsolete. Let's be done with it. Let's literally, after service today, let's take this and go throw it in the trash. It's old it doesn't work, it never worked. There are new HD 4K realities available to us today in Christ. If you're in Christ, you are a new covenant person. Right? So, so as new covenant people, how do we respond? Well, two things I'd say, how do we respond? First, if you're not yet in Christ, we would invite you, we would implore you to receive Christ today. Let him change you from the inside out so that he can change you forever. And if you have questions or concerns on that, come talk to me, come talk to Jeff, come talk to Todd, come talk to really, honestly, anyone around you can probably help you process through your doubts, your concerns, your fears, your questions. We want you, if you're not yet in Christ, we want you to experience all the glories of these new covenant realities, and we want that to start today. So if you feel something stirring in you, respond. That's probably God pursuing you, so respond to that today. Come talk to somebody. But for those who are in Christ, here's how I think we respond. Let's be who we are, right? Profound. Like, you made me wait for that, Brian. Like, but that's how we respond. There's nothing for us to do, because that's old covenant, right? Okay, I'm convicted. I got to go do something. That's old way of thinking. New covenant is, all right, this is who I am. This is what God's done. I'm just going to be who I am. As new covenant people, let's live life to the full in all of these new covenant realities. And when we find ourselves drifting back to old covenant ways, because we will, we will, 
When we find ourselves drifting back, let's simply admit that, let's confess that, and walk in repentance as we turn away from that back to our covenant-keeping God, who, by the way, if you missed it, has forgiven all of your sins, including your drift back into the old way, and has promised us full and forever forgiveness in Christ. So Christian, perhaps today the Holy Spirit's kind of just put something on your heart. Maybe you're being stirred and moved on the inside. Perhaps he's revealed something to you or maybe is inviting you back into new covenant living with him. Just want to end with 2 Corinthians 5 and then we have a, a great story to share with you today. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is what? A new creation. The old... So old hearts, old minds, old life, old covenant. The old has passed away. Behold, and that word behold is is huge. It's look hard and linger long. Look hard and linger long that the new has come. New hearts, new minds, new lives in a new covenant. This is what God has done for us. Church family, let's be who we are. Amen. All right. Um, Like we did last week, we have uh, someone who's going to come share their story with you of someone who's experiencing these new covenant realities in ever deepening deepening ways. So I've asked Amy Hansen to come share about the internal transformation in freedom in Christ she's been experiencing recently, uh, specifically through her time in a ministry we have here called Regen. Okay, good morning. Um, Being part of the region ministry messed up everything. (laughs) That's just the truth of it. I used to be able to come to church wearing my church face, smiling at people, making small talk, answering the question, how are you, with a great that probably wasn't an accurate representation of my reality. I could ask other people how they were doing while expectantly waiting for them to say great so that I could, you know, make conversation with them. But I did always hope that they didn't tell me about a problem or a struggle because then I would have to try to fix that because that's what I did. I could sit in my pew at the back and I could look at the heads of all the people in front of me, um, all of those people that had everything together the ones with perfect marriages and perfect children, um, you know, the super spiritual ones. I could look at the back of their heads and I could feel sorry for myself because I wasn't one of those people. I had a goal and I always knew what I needed to do to achieve that goal. I needed to make sure that I looked like one of the super spiritual people who was walking so closely with God that there wasn't room for anything bad to happen in my family or there wasn't room for me to sin. I was quick with a Bible verse for all situations and a bless their heart when I heard about somebody's struggle. (laughs) Building up this wall took a significant amount of time and effort. But then I began my discipleship journey in Regen and God used the materials in Regen and his people specifically to mess up my carefully crafted false life. First, God reminded me of who he is, my creator, my redeemer, my comfort, my hope. 
I wasn't fooling him with my facade that I'd built. He knows everything about me. But I was allowing that wall to prevent me from enjoying the peace and contentment that comes from an intimate relationship with him. God also surrounded me with an amazing demolition team. A group of women who not only helped me tear down my walls, but also let me share in their demolition and rebuilding projects. Yep, Regen messed up everything. Now when I come to church, I can't put on my smile and say things are great because there are women who know my hurts and my struggles. And when they ask me how things are going, I know they're asking about my son's depression and my worry level. They're not going to let me say things are great because they love me and they're walking with me, sharing my burdens. And now when I ask these ladies how they're doing, that I'm really asking that question, not just making conversation. And I don't have to try to fix things, because I can't. I'm simply there to listen, support, encourage, and point them to Jesus, just as they do for me. And now when I sit in my pew on Sunday morning, I'm part of the lives of those people whose heads I used to envy. I know that I'm not alone in my sin patterns and my struggles, and that all of us struggle. And many of us struggle in the same ways. Now my goal is not to maintain my super spiritual image, a completely exhausting and unattainable goal. Instead, I want to live the life God calls us to in Ephesians 4.32 through 5.1. Being kind to others, tender-hearted, forgiving others, just as God in Christ forgave me. Being an imitator of God as his beloved child. Being an imitator of God can be hard. It can be tiring and messy because it involves peopling. And that's hard for introverts like me. Building relationships and trust, knowing each other and being known by others, sharing burdens is hard. But the amazing thing about this is that it's all done by the power of God by his Holy Spirit working in us and through us. Building and maintaining my wall was hard work too because I was doing it on my own. Living and loving God and each other in community is God's work and he allows me to share in it. So yes, Regen messed up everything. All the walls I had spent years designing and building, God used Regen and my church family to tear down so that he could rebuild me in the life he redeemed me to have. Yes, Regen messed up everything, but my name is Amy and I have a new life in Christ and I'm living that life in intimacy with God and in community with my church family and I would invite you to join me in that. All right, so you guys can come on up. We're going we're gonna to close with a song. What we wanted to do before we dismiss for the summer was just give you a taste of some of the things God's doing in the hearts and lives of people who have been in Regen. Um, Regen isn't a magic bullet. It doesn't fix anything. It actually won't fix you. Jesus is the one who does the good work. Regen is just the context. As we uh, move towards uh, the fall, we'll share more about it in service. But again, we just wanted to give you a taste of what Regen is and we'd invite you to come talk to some people about it. Come talk to Amy. Come talk to myself. Come talk to anyone that you hear has maybe gone through it. Get the, the good, the bad, the positive, the negative. Um, 
Regen is just a place right now we're seeing God do some good work. So I ask these guys just to close with the song, um, King of Kings. We're just gonna stand in glory in the realities of all God is for us in the new covenant. So let's sing this together. Amen. So we have a God who loves us. We have a God who's done incredible work for us. A God who makes it possible for us to live in all the new covenant realities that he has laid out before us. Church family, let's be who we are. Enjoy the day. Go celebrate with some other New Covenant people.